0: Welcome to Bed Crime Stories Podcast. I'm your host, T, to my loyal bed crimers, Hi, how are you? I hope you're having a great time. Don't get too stressed out about the holidays. It's supposed to be about family and love, and don't worry about all the other stuff. Post his conviction for his ex brother in law, Dan Markell's death, Charlie Adelson has spent many hours on the phone with his parents. As I've listened to these long calls, I've noticed Charlie keeps restating the same complaints and the same themes and topics. Today, I'm going to share those with you. Note that these are Charlie Adelson's opinions. Just because he says these things doesn't make them true. And by sharing them with you, I'm not saying that any of them are true either. What's interesting about the calls is, is that Charlie knows they're being recorded and listened to by the cop. Thus, he and his mother, Donna, are well aware that they cannot speak frankly, so at times they will sort of allude to things and then say, do you understand? Yes, I understand. I know exactly what you mean, etc. Number one, Charlie believes that Tallahassee, Florida, was never going to be a place where he could get a fair trial because one, his sister, Wendy Adelson, in her book, portrayed Tallahassee as a backward, small town with not very bright people living in it. Charlie even described one potential juror as looking like, quote, an inbred. It's so rude and condescending to say such a thing. And two, there are, per Charlie, nine law enforcement agencies in Tallahassee, which means most of the jurors or potential jurors had law enforcement connections. Charlie tells his parents that during the voir dire process, he couldn't pick even one juror who would be good for him. And he makes it sound like anyone who knew about Wendy's book and her feelings about living in Tallahassee would not like him, would not like Charlie Adelson. He basically said that the jury pool was a bushel of all bad apples. The second repeated theme that Charlie discusses is that the prosecutor, Georgia Kappelman, misrepresented the meaning of a reasonable doubt to the jurors. Per Charlie, Kapelman kept telling the jurors to quote, use your common sense. Charlie also felt Kappelman was exaggerating her southern twang to get the jurors to see her as one of them and to achieve a sort of folksy persona that would make the jury like her and be more agreeable to the information she was sharing. The third theme is that Charlie insists he'll be fine in prison, provided he is placed in protective custody. He goes on at length about the dangers that many convicts face from other convicts in prison, and this very much upsets Donna and Harvey. He's very insensitive to how they might feel about him telling them how dangerous it will be for him in prison. So he goes on and on about the dangers. Then when he hears that they're upset, he says, oh, but no, I'll be fine because I'll end up in protective custody. And then Donna says to him, it's going to get better over time. Well, that's an easy thing to tell to someone sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole, that it's going to get better. When you're sitting in the comfort of your home, remember at this point during these calls, Donna had yet to be arrested. This whole thing feels like Donna thinks it's okay that Charlie take the hit, meaning take the life in prison sentence and be the fall guy for this whole scheme. The fourth off-repeated idea is that Charlie feels Kaplman displayed Dan Markell's gruesome autopsy photos on massive screens to drive home how gruesome the crime was to the jurors. Charlie's upset with how often Kaplman put those photos on display how large the images were, and the length of time that the photos were displayed. So for him, it sounds like every second of those photos being displayed was agony, but for Kappelman, she wanted to put it in the faces of the jurors so that they knew the gravity of the crime. The fifth repeated idea is that Charlie keeps mentioning Wendy's drive down the street where Dan Markell was living on the day of the crime, one hour after Dan Markell was shot. Wendy has said that she went that way because it was the only route that she knew to this particular liquor store where she went to buy a bottle of Bullet Bourbon. Bullet is the name of the family that makes the bourbon, by the way. So Charlie says this drive looks suspicious, which it does, and it indicates either Wendy knew about the crime, as in had foreknowledge that a crime was going to occur, or, as crazy as it appears, it was a simple coincidence. Charlie feels that he was found guilty, in large part because this drive that Wendy made made it look like Wendy had prior knowledge of the crime, and that would imply that the prior knowledge came from Charlie Adelson. Charlie also believes that Wendy's travel on the day of the crime was a big piece of evidence that got him convicted. Personally, I feel like Charlie may now try to throw Wendy under the bus. If he's gonna go down, then the person he arranged this crime for is gonna go down too. The sixth repeated theme is that Charlie views the case the prosecutor made against him like an episode of Dateline. He feels like the evidence the prosecutor presented about his mother Donna's nasty emails in which she told Wendy things she could do to upset Dan Markel, such as dress her two sons in Nazi uniforms and or enroll them in a Catholic school. Markel was devoted to his Jewish faith and he was raising his sons in that faith. Charlie feels that Kappelman used Donna's emails to portray the Adelsons as a crazy family. I would agree with Charlie on this one, that all of this makes the Adelsons look like a crazy family, and I think they are a crazy family. The seventh repeated idea is Charlie's disbelief that all 12 jurors found him guilty of the crime. Charlie was certain at least one juror would find reasonable doubt to believe he was guilty, but clearly that's not what happened. He thought he would either get a hung jury or be found innocent. Charlie has spent a lot of time prior to getting convicted, envisioning walking back into his house after being acquitted. He dreamed of which restaurants he would go to, etc. He never once considered that he'd be found guilty. To me, this indicates that Charlie was engaging in magical thinking. He wasn't clear-headed about the evidence. He was blind to how his extortion story would come across to the jurors. He thought they'd buy into it when it sounds like no one did. And apparently his lawyer kept telling him, everything's going great, you're going to walk out of here. The eighth repeated idea is that Charlie expresses upset, that he did not listen to his gut and instead allowed other people to talk him into doing things a certain way that was different from how he thought things should be done. Charlie told his parents, I'm too smart and I have too good of a gut, end quote. But I'm not sure who he's referring to when he says he should have listened to his gut. Could it be his mother who kept encouraging him to find a way to take care of the Dan Markell problem? Is it that he didn't listen to his gut when his gut told him to make a getaway to either Vietnam or Mexico or somewhere where it would be hard for the authorities to find him and arrest him? The ninth repeated idea is that Charlie thinks his testimony came off perfectly, as if he hit a home run. He doesn't see clearly that his extortion story came across as a big fib. Charlie, in my opinion, has a huge ego, and it looks like an ego that was fed by his adoring and ever doting mother, Donna, who continues to listen to these long phone calls in which he goes over and over the same information. Donna and Harvey, in my mind, created the monster that is Charlie Adelson. By the way, I looked up the rates of collect calls made out of the Leon County Jail, and from what I could see, it's $0.14 a minute. Most of Charlie's calls with his parents last about an hour and a half. If my math is correct, which I am terrible at math, such a call costs approximately $12.60. I suspect Charlie made multiple collect calls to his parents each day, but let's say he made just one hour-and-a-half call each day to them, each day of the week. That would come to $88 for the week and $352 for the month. For the well-to-do Adelson's, this is clearly no big deal, but for most people, This would present a financial hardship. Charlie Adelson is privileged to come from a wealthy family that could hire him a decent lawyer that can make these long calls and allow him to just go on and on and on, which he says makes spending time in his isolation cell bearable. It's like he wants to stay on the phone as long as possible because while he's talking to his parents, he feels normal. It's clear that his parents have continued to put money in his canteen so that he can buy whatever food he wants. He can buy clothing. He can buy whatever's available there. Although he complains a lot, he's got it really good. I mean, a lot of people can't buy what they want, and access to the items in the canteen can make your life bearable. Snacks at night... Goodies you can use like ramen noodles to make tasty food when the food served from the cafeteria apparently is just awful in most cases. What's surprising to me though is the one area where he's not engaging in magical thinking is that he knows he's going to be incarcerated for the rest of his life. He doesn't believe that any of the appeals will work. He seems to be accepting his fate And he's trying to get things in order so that his son, Roman, can have a good life. And Donna was reassuring him that the monies that they have will be put in a trust and that Wendy can be trusted to use those monies to make sure that Roman never wants for anything, that he has a good life, that he gets what he needs, because Donna says she and Harvey aren't going to live forever So Wendy's going to be in charge, if she doesn't go to prison, of doling out the monies to take care of all the children. So I'm wondering, now that Donna has been arrested, is Charlie having phone calls with his father, Harvey? In so many of these long prison calls, Harvey was there, but he was in the background, and he wasn't saying much. He doesn't seem to be much of a talker. So is Charlie now isolated and unable to speak to his family who seem to make him feel better? And if he doesn't have access to family members to talk to, how is he coping? What is his mental state right now? That's all for today. I hope you guys have a great day and I'll see you next time on Bed Crime Stories. Smash that like button. It's a free way you can help me.